2: From KQED Public Radio in San Francisco, I'm Mina Kim. Coming up on Forum, we get the latest from Georgia's Senate runoff and look at how the state's demographic shifts, coupled with organizing and voter engagement, are changing politics as usual there and across the country. The Senate election results are significant for California. With John Ossoff's lead expected to hold and Democrats gaining a 50-50 split in the Senate, California's Kamala Harris becomes an especially consequential vice president. The Ripple Effect of the Georgia Senate runoffs, next on Forum. Join us. This is Forum. I'm Nina Kim. With Democrat Raphael Warnock's victory in one of Georgia's two Senate runoffs yesterday, He becomes the first black U.S. senator in his state's history. If Democrat John Ossoff's lead holds in the other runoff, President-elect Joe Biden begins his presidency on January 20th with Democrats in control of Congress. Joining me now is Emma Hurt, politics reporter for WABE in Atlanta. Welcome to
3: Forum, Emma Hurt. Hi, thank you for having me.
2: So what's the mood like where you are in Georgia today?
3: So, um, the latest really are the, the numbers of outstanding ballots that we've gotten from the Secretary of State's office, and the bulk of those are coming from heavily Democratic counties. And, you know, Representative from the Secretary of State's office today projected that, or predicted that, that uh, John Ossoff, the other Democrat in the race that hasn't yet been called, will, you know, widen his lead beyond even the, the margin that's needed for a recount. So that's that's where things are right now.
2: That's where things are. And I'm sure people are are in high anticipation. You know, after the race was called yesterday for Reverend Raphael Warnock, he gave a very moving victory speech where he described his 82 year old mother picking cotton for someone else and being able to pick or vote for her youngest son to be a U.S. senator. He goes on to say this.
1: So I come before you tonight as a man who knows that the improbable journey that led me to this place in this historic moment in America could only happen here.
2: hurt for those of us in California not as familiar with Senator-elect Reverend Raphael Warnock, can you talk about the significance of his victory?
3: It's it's hugely symbolic, obviously, for, for the reasons that, that you stated and that he outlined himself Um, Reverend Warnock is the pastor of Ebenezer Baptist Church, which is the home church of Martin Luther King Jr. here in Atlanta. He's held that role for about 15 years and um, has been a, has been a force in that world has been a force um, of progressive activism from that pulpit. And, you know, it's also symbolic, I think, to have a black preacher be Senator. Um, It's really remarkable on top of just, just the historic nature of of him being the first senator of color. Um, and I will also say, you know, John Ossoff, if he is elected officially, um, would be Georgia's first Jewish senator as well, and also the youngest senator in, in history. Yes, my
2: understanding is the youngest since Joe Biden, <laughs> a Democrat
3: a ah, senator. Yes, thank you for correcting me. No, no, Sorry, it's not the... a correction, actually.
2: Yeah. I just mean sort of the symmetry of that is kind of amazing.
3: Yeah, you're right. It is, and you
2: know, Warnock did seem to be doing a little bit better throughout the night. Of course, as we've seen since his race was able to be called sooner, but a little better than Ossoff across the board. Similarly, Purdue doing better than Leffler. Can you talk a little bit about, you know, why we saw that outcome? I mean, clearly there there was some split ticketing going on there. <laughs>
3: Yeah, absolutely. It's actually a story I've been, I've been kind of chasing down today. I've been, I reached out trying to to get some of these Purdue Warnock voters to talk to me and I've been hearing from them. And, um, you know, it's a mixed bag, but, you know, it's worth noting that Senator Purdue was elected six years ago. He's had six years in office and he did have, you know, identity, an identity before Trump. Um, while he tied himself very closely to the president, he did um, have a record to run on. And Senator Leffler, the other Republican, she just has had about a year and she had a challenge from the right early on. and so she was forced to run really um, exactly with the president. She called herself a hundred percent with the president. And so she didn't really have her own um, I- identity in a way with voters. Um, There was also, you know, just anecdotally, I'm hearing people who who just didn't really feel she was an authentic candidate. They found her not believable, couldn't relate to her in a way. And then the historic nature of Reverend Warnock's candidacy, I also think, was a factor for voters who who really wanted to see this happen for Georgia, too.
2: So there was also, of course, highlighted that, you know, day of voting, election day voting would be especially pivotal for Republicans. It seems like that turnout was low, depressed potentially by uh, concerns about concerns raised by the president that uh, the election in Georgia, his his loss in Georgia, was a result of fraud. Do you do you think that played a role? And what is the conversation around that today in Georgia?
3: I think that is a factor. There's also the factor of just people who 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 really didn't like the president you know joe biden did carry this state very narrowly but he did and the senators in november the republicans in the senate races outperformed the president but in these runoffs Trump has basically been on the ballot with the two Republican senators. Um, and so so if, if you're a voter who voted against President Trump, then you might be feeling that urge, might have felt that, that urge again. But to your point also about election fraud, I mean, I went to cover President Trump's rally in Dalton where he did say, you know, please go vote for David and Kelly, we need you to go vote for David and Kelly, but spent most of the time talking about a voter fraud that has without providing any evidence that's been disputed and, and debunked. But as I was driving home, I saw a sign on the side of the road in rural Georgia that said boycott rigged runoff. Mm. So it it was a confusing message. And so even if there are just a couple 1000, you know, people who, who held back because of that, that could have been enough.
2: There were some who suggested that the president should have spent more time attacking John Ossoff and Reverend Raphael Warnock than, say, Governor Kemp or Secretary of State Ravensburger. Is that a sentiment that you hear very much?
3: Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's that's kind of the word today of what happened, as I'm asking Republicans, and the answer is Trump. I mean, the election, the voter fraud, questioning, of course, but also just, you know, really kind of... Um, roiling the ground that Republicans in Georgia have been standing on by targeting his former ally, the governor, and by putting pressure on the governor and our Secretary of State to really, you know, violate their oaths of office and overturn an election that's been certified twice. Um, it, it really didn't do Republicans any favors in these runoffs.
2: Well, Emma Hurt, before I let you go, tell us how Georgians are doing overall. There's been so (laughs) much attention paid to this state, so much money, so many ads, so many people. How are are people feeling right now?
3: Yeah, I mean, I think everybody's just feeling ready for the ads to stop. I'm personally pretty excited to stop having to recycle 10, a dozen uh, mailers every day um, and to be able to maybe watch a a football game and and not see back to back to back to back to back ads um, will be refreshing. So Georgians, Georgians are exhausted. I think we're all ready for 2020 to be over because it hasn't been over until, until about now.
2: Ah, Well, Emma Hurt, politics reporter for WABE in Atlanta. Thanks so much for joining us.
3: Thanks for having me anytime.
2: Joining me now is Bernard Fraga, Associate Professor of Political Science at Emory University and author of The Turnout Gap, Race, Ethnicity and Political Inequality in a Diversifying America. Dr. Fraga, thanks so much for joining us.
4: Thanks so much for having me.
2: I mean, we were just hearing Emma Hurt saying that a lot of Georgians are glad it's over, but what a consequential role this state had to play. and. You know the fact that Georgia became competitive for Democrats is is widely being attributed to two things one the changing demographics of the state the other of course Stacey Abrams and other uh organizers led organizations also led by black women who've worked hard to engage new voters do you agree that these were two really pivotal things that happened in Georgia
4: yeah I think that's absolutely right you know the way that I talked about this last night As we saw the election results coming in and it was clear that Democrats, if they were going to win, were going to win, um, you know, really because of the strength of black voter turnout. Is that the demographics of the state, the increase in the Latino Asian American, but also African American populations in Georgia, those are the ingredients um, necessary for political change in the state, but the recipe. The recipe for change is instead the organizing that's been happening on the ground, not just since 2020, since November, not just since 2018, Stacey Abrams campaign, but for years before that, the groups that have been in Georgia working to mobilize, energize and engage with the minority communities that frankly have been underrepresented in Georgia politics for decades.
2: And can you talk about how the demographics have changed in Georgia? There has been a lot of attention paid also to increasing turnout among Asian American voters. What share of the population do they hold?
4: So Asian Americans are a relatively small share of Georgia's population. If you look at the voting eligible population, perhaps four or five percent. But the We saw a very, very high level of voter turnout in November. In fact, turnout appears to have increased by as much as 20 percentage points from what we saw in just, you know, the 2016 election, a really big increase in Asian American turnout that again points to the power of organizers on the ground. Also, the ease of identifying Asian American voters, given the, uh, you know, tremendous transparency of Georgia election records and the fact that people Register to vote with their race or ethnicity listed on the registration form. Really? Um, in any case, it's it's a fact that these organizing kind of tactics have been effective in mobilizing not just African-Americans, but also Asian-Americans in Georgia.
2: And also Latino voters as well?
4: Yeah, Latino turnout was also, you know, a high, large increase in November 2020 relative to past elections. Again, because, you know, as we heard, and this happened to me as well, Uh, organizers could knock on the door of every single Latino voter in the state. Again, a relatively small population, about 4% of the state's voting eligible population perhaps, but, you know, can be targeted given the data that's available in Georgia.
2: Again, we're talking with Bernard Fraga, Associate Professor of Political Science at Emory University, author of The Turnout Gap, Race, Ethnicity, and Political Inequality in a Diversifying America. We're talking about the U.S. Senate runoff elections in Georgia. We want you, our listeners, to join the conversation. What is your reaction to what happened last night? What is playing out today? Your reaction to Reverend Raphael Warnock's victory last night? If Democrats do gain control of the Senate, With John Ossoff's lead expected to hold, what issues do you think lawmakers should tackle first? You can give us a call, 866-733-6786. Again, 866-733-6786. You can also get in touch on Twitter or Facebook at KQED Forum or email your questions or comments to forum at kqed.org. I'm Mina Kim. Stay with us. You're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're talking about the U.S. Senate runoff elections in Georgia. Joining me is Bernard Fraga, Associate Professor of Political Science at Emory University. And also you, our listeners, are with us giving your reactions to the runoff. 866-733-6786 is the number to call. Again, 866-733-6786. Email us at forum at kqed.org or reach us on Twitter or Facebook at kqedforum. So just before the break, uh, Dr. Fargo, we were talking about sort of the demographic shifts, but can you also just tell us, you know, what party preferences uh, the voters tend to have based on what what data we do have available to us at this point? And, And also, you know, the question that always accompanies this, which is, was this kind of turnout an aberration, you know, given the stakes of this particular election, or is this something that is expected to continue?
4: Yeah, so, you know, when we about georgia unlike many other parts of the country uh partisanship and race are so deeply intertwined that we can know a tremendous amount about who someone's going to vote for just by knowing their race and ethnicity. Now, of course, in most of the country and everywhere in the country, in fact, you know, African-Americans are highly, highly likely to support Democrats and identify as Democrats in their everyday lives. For Latinos and Asians, while we do see, um, you know, a higher Republican preference, perhaps compared to the black population, it's still nowhere near the uh, Republican preference we see for whites. But in Georgia, the big difference is that white voters are so disproportionately Republican compared to many other parts of the country, including California. And here I'm talking about, you know, 70%, perhaps more than that, of whites supporting uh, Republicans, including President Trump in 2020, that, you know, when we talk about Democrats' opportunities for mobilizing, for changing the dynamics of a state like Georgia, it's really about building and empowering minority voters, much more than the kind of white suburban voters that on the fringes are important, but are just not the story here in a place like Georgia.
2: Were there things that made, and this is, I guess, on the question of whether this will hold, that made voting easier this particular election, given the pandemic, that may or may not continue?
4: That's a great question. I I think about it in two ways. First of all, you know, if we didn't have the expansion of uh, no absentee, um, no excuse absentee voting, uh, some early voting opportunities as well, you know, given the pandemic, many people might have decided to stay home because they didn't want to risk their health, or their lives in order to vote. Uh, on the other hand the tremendous interest in this election the importance of turning out to vote uh, in november in georgia the potential for um you know having a, a democrat win the state for the first time in 30 years which is what happened and also you know in the runoff the potential for the democrats to win back the senate and have an effective senate majority you know was enough to encourage voters that despite the pandemic perhaps aided a little bit by that additional voting opportunities but despite the pandemic uh they needed to turn out to vote and i think That's a a big question going forward is whether we'll see this kind of sky high turnout among all groups, but especially among minority voters in the future.
2: Well, let me go to Carla Francisco in San Francisco. Hi, Francisco. Join us.
1: So yeah. Uh, I just wanted to comment on uh, your comment about the legislation that the Senate needs to address first when uh, we do get both Democrats in there. And I believe that the legislation that they need to focus on first is
4: first uh, to help people with a $200 check. And then the next legislation should be the Voting Rights Act to make sure that if the corporate Democrats do not help the people, to make sure that with the Voting Rights Act, we make sure that we protect the right to vote uh, for our constituents. I'll take my uh, comment off here.
2: Francisco, thanks for that. And and, uh, the $2,000 checks, the Voting Rights Act, could you talk about the significance of that, the John Lewis Voting Rights Act, in terms of...
4: Especially as someone who's really looked at voting over the course of your career. So, you know, I'm sitting here in Atlanta, Georgia right now, in John Lewis's district, which is my home district, his his former district, obviously. And I'm thinking about the struggles. I'm thinking about the work that's been done, the blood that has been shed for the right to vote. And I'm also thinking about the fact that Georgia, I think, is a tremendous kind of example of what happens, or what could happen at least, when formally disempowered, disenfranchised groups come together and turn out to vote. And I think that both Democrats and Republicans know what can happen, and that is the Democrats can win elections. In my own research, I found tremendous evidence that if voter turnout was higher, in fact, if everyone turned out to vote, Democrats would do very well in states like Georgia and other states of the Sun Belt, Texas included. And I think that for Democrats now, it's incumbent upon them to understand that they need to make the case to the American people that the right to vote is indeed a right, that no one should be denied the opportunity to vote in the manner perhaps that they choose as well Uh, Despite what states might want, despite what anyone in either political party might want, that we need to expand voting rights. Now, on the $2,000 checks, I think that's also a very important piece of legislation that I know Senator Schumer has already mentioned will be top of the agenda. And again, speaks to the importance of listening to the needs of underrepresented and disenfranchised communities, including the ones hardest hit by the pandemic. You mentioned
2: Texas. I'm wondering what you feel like are the states that could really use what's
4: happening in Georgia as a blueprint? Well, Texas is such a fascinating example. Uh, similar to Georgia, I think that the, the narrative we could uh, you know, use for Texas is that it's a state that is already blue or at very least purple. It's just that it's suppressed to the point of being a solidly red state. And we saw some gains for Democrats, at least in terms of the presidential election tally in this past November. But, you know, it's still um, pretty far from being a kind of purple um, and certainly solidly blue state state again, despite the growing minority populations there. And again, that's because white voters are so disproportionately Republican. In fact, are increasingly Republican in their vote preference. So if everyone voted in Texas, it'd be very clear that that would be a a democratic or at very least a purple state. And the point there is that Texas has some of the most restrictive voting laws in the country. And so any effort that is made to kind of make it easy for people to vote will lead to outcomes in Texas that better represent what Texans want. Better represent what people in Washington want or in other states want, but again, what Texans already want from the government.
2: Can I ask you for your assessment of how the vote went in Georgia this time around? Just before you came on, I was talking with WABE's Emma Hurt about the impact of the president, about the impact of um, saying that the vote was rigged in Georgia, for example, the impact of him not conceding and thus sort of denying potentially Senator Perdue and Senator Loeffler an opportunity to say, basically, we do need to contain a democratic administration and a democratic majority in the House. I just wanted to get your assessment as a political scientist on that as well, and whether, you know, voters were affected by that.
4: Well, you know, obviously the election is the result of a kind of agglomeration of many, many different factors. Uh, I can't really know what the world would be like if we didn't have uh, the president's kind of rhetoric, objecting to the election results, criticizing Republican officials that he supported as recently as 2018 in their election bids. Uh, But what we do know for sure is that despite high Republican turnout in the state, in fact, Republican turnout that likely hit the targets Republicans thought they needed, extremely high African-American turnout on election day made the difference. So, you know, we could imagine Republican turnout would have been even higher than anyone expected if you didn't have this kind of albatross of the uh you know disputed election result hanging around the necks of David Perdue and Kelly Leffler. But again, I think the story in Georgia is really one about very high black turnout, both in early voting and on election
1: day.
2: And Ginger writes, I moved from Oakland to Atlanta in the spring of 2020, specifically Fulton County. This was a move back to Georgia for my husband. I know this is hard for the president to believe. I'm so very elated this afternoon. I'm sure the city will be in celebration today as it was after Biden was declared the winner. Georgia had the guts to do what Kentucky and South Carolina couldn't. In terms of Georgia's population growing, I mean, Ginger, for example, moving in the spring of 2020, uh, what are the projections there?
4: So it's very interesting, and and welcome to Atlanta. Uh, The... I think the story about demographic change in Georgia has two parts. One is the growing Latino and Asian American populations in the state, you know, driven by immigration in part, but also by native born, um, you know, the native born population, you know, children turning 18. But when we talk about demographic change, we also have to discuss people moving into the state from outside, especially the growth of the African American population driven by people moving You know, maybe historically they have ancestors who came from the south, but people moving to Atlanta, to the metro area for economic, cultural and social opportunities that exist here. I think we just heard one example of that, perhaps from caller. But, you know, to me, I think that when we think about the future of Georgia, it's about those transplants, but it's really about Georgia and the economic growth and development, which benefits everyone, at least in theory in Georgia, you know, driving more and more people to come to Atlanta, come to the metro, also other parts of the state for those opportunities. And while that uh, migration might be disproportionately minority, again, you know, it's really everyone coming to Georgia and seeing new opportunities here.
2: And again, you can also post your comments to Forum By getting in touch on Twitter or Facebook at KQBD Forum or emailing your questions or comments to forum at KQBD.org, we're talking about the U.S. Senate runoff elections in Georgia and the way that they are playing out. Joining me is Bernard Fraga, Associate Professor of Political Science at Emory University, author of The Turnout Gap, Race, Ethnicity, and Political Inequality in a Diversifying America. We want to hear from you, our listeners, what your reactions are to what has come what the outcomes have been so far? I mean, your reaction to Reverend Raphael Warnock's victory last night. If Democrats Democrats do gain control of the Senate, what issues should lawmakers tackle first? And let me go to Phil in Burlingame. Hi, Phil. Join us.
1: Hi. So, you know, if the Democrats get control, if we get control of the House and the Senate and, and uh, you know, the executive, there. The progressives will want us to, you know, uh, do things that we haven't been able to for a long time. And that concerns me because we have to figure out why did Trump become president and how are all these extra constitutional measures like allowed, like his call to the go- governor for in an election in which he had a stake and there are people saying that's not legal. Uh, you know, we really have to protect our system, don't we, before we do anything?
2: Uh, Phil, thanks. I, uh, Bernard Parker, do you want to respond to what Phil is raising here?
4: Sure. I think that's an excellent point about the agenda going forward. Of course, if we, you know, were to see, and you know, the the race is yet to be called, but it looks very favorable for Democrats uh, in Georgia these two Senate seats. If the, uh, you know, if the Democrats do win the majority, as it appears that they will, you know, it's very clear that this will smooth the path a little bit for Joe Biden and his agenda. However, at the same time, the only way we get to this effective Democratic majority is with the 50 votes, every single person who's caucusing with the Democrats, plus Kamala Harris, the VP voting as a tiebreaker vote. So, you know, this is up to the more moderate Republican or Democratic senators, such as Joe Manchin from West Virginia. Uh, He's going to be very decisive and have a very powerful role to play potentially. In addition, the filibuster is still in place, so that's going to mean that some Republicans may have to join on board, especially if some Democratic senators like Joe Manchin are, are not in favor of these progressive policies related to things like climate change, for example. So, so I agree that there's a potential here, more potential than there was with Mitch McConnell in charge for uh, Democrats to get their agenda enacted, but I think the more progressive elements of the agenda are going to be in many ways just as difficult to get through the Senate as they were before.
2: Well, joining me now is Joe Garofoli, senior politics writer at the San Francisco Chronicle. Joe, thanks so much for joining us.
4: Good morning. Thanks
5: for, uh, for inviting me.
2: And it's a perfect segue to having you here because, you know, we are talking about, of course, if the results of the U.S. Senate elections in Georgia, at least the way they appear to be going, hold, for example, of Democrat John Ossoff defeat, defeats Senator David Perdue. Democrats do get that 50-50 split in the House. Um, Bernard Fraga has laid out quite a few things. But first and foremost, of course, that 50-50 split means that California's vice president-elect Kamala Harris has a very important role. Can you just talk about the significance of that?
5: Yes, she, we, she will have more FaceTime than any vice president we've seen in a long time because she'll be casting that uh, deciding vote. Um, you know, it's not she's obviously going to be sort of a messenger for the administration. It's, it's not her call one way or the other. But still, and uh, it will be face time is valuable because if Biden does not uh, uh, run for a second term, it will sort of jumpstart her presidential hopes.
2: And you had a piece, too, just about what a ripple effect this could have in California. There's obviously that, given that she is such a California's basically most prominent national figure. But what other things do you think we need to be thinking about in terms of what California or how Californians will be affected by this?
5: Well, there's going to be a a policy that will be affected uh, that will affect uh, every California or many Californians. There'll be certainly more money. Uh, In in California's pockets, Uh, if there's another stimulus bill, Biden said that this morning, Chuck Schumer said that this morning, uh, so that uh, COVID-19 stimulus package, we might uh, get $2,000 payments, There might be more money for state and local governments, the California state budget was certainly counting on that uh, last year, they didn't get what they wanted to, that will help. There's going to be uh, likely more money for vaccine distribution. That's uh, been a challenge here in California to get uh, as many people vaccinated as we want to get uh, vaccinated. Biden's promised uh, uh, vaccinations for 100 million Americans in his first 100 days. And tax relief for some Californians. Uh, last year, Pelosi uh, wanted to lift the, the cap on state and local tax deductions that uh, Republicans put in place uh, three years ago as part of their tax law. That, that of course, went nowhere with uh, McConnell and Trump in charge, but that could uh, be uh, good news for uh, Californians. Uh, It would also be bad news for Californians, wealthy Californians who make more than $400,000 a year because Biden says those are the people he's going to raise taxes on.
2: Well, speaking of McConnell, I believe we have a call to that effect. Let me go to Mike in Sacramento. And of course, you can call 866-733-6786 to join the conversation. Hi,
1: Mike. Hi, thanks for taking my call. I had a question about the um, transfer of power of uh, the Senate majority leader going from uh, McConnell to, I guess, Chuck Schumer. Would that be, in- would that be instantaneous, or is there going to be a lame duck period, or how does that work?
2: Yes, talk about the process, Joe Gare-Foley. Uh I think,
5: from what I understand, uh, the the process will be as if Democrats have... Uh, all the power uh, as they would if they had a 51-49 majority. In other words, they would have control of the committees and and, and such. Um, So it would be as if uh, uh, Chuck Schumer would be in charge.
2: Well, there is also another logistical question from Michael who asks, are both Georgia seats for six-year terms? The answer is no, right, Joe?
5: No, I believe the one is is finishing out a term. So I think uh, Warnock has two more years left.
2: Right, he'll have to rerun in two, whereas Ossoff will, (coughs) in fact, have that six-year term. And uh, I am just wanting to give an update. So we understand that there is a protest in Washington, D.C. I'm being told that Capitol Police have ordered the evacuation of the House's Cannon office building because of protests by Trump supporters. And uh, we will give you updates on that, which is quite a significant move. And, of course, Joe, this is related to... The congressional vote to confirm President elect Joe Biden's Electoral College victory. I mean, that is also playing out today. <laughs> and uh, yeah. you know, we, if you want to talk a little bit about that. Yeah. And that's uh, th- this
5: is putting re- re- Republicans, uh, especially California Republicans, in a very difficult position. Two out of every three voters in California voted against President Trump. But yet, uh, Republicans in California are very dependent on Trump supporters. Six, six million people in California voted for President Trump, and many of those votes uh, are representing districts that uh, are full of Trump voters. So, uh, But as of now, only two uh, members of the, of the California House, Republican House delegation say they're going to essentially buck President Trump and 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 say that the elections were conducted fairly and and uh, and and cleanly and such. And those two folks are uh, Congressman Tom McClintock, who represents a, a northern California district, sort of in the Sierra, and uh, and Young Kim, who is a uh, first-term uh, member of Congress, Congresswoman from Orange County. Uh, they said, you know, they essentially are are going to are putting their necks out there, especially for. Um, Young Kim, a a uh, first-termer, to say, essentially, I'm going against the president. That's a huge risk.
2: Well, we're talking with Joe Garofoli, senior politics writer at the San Francisco Chronicle, Bernard Fraga, associate professor of political science at Emory University, and you, our listeners, we're talking about the Georgia runoff, the politics that are playing out today with the vote to confirm President-elect Joe Biden, and much more. Stay with us. I'm Mina Kim, 866-733-6786, our number to join the conversation. This is Forum. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're talking about the U.S. Senate runoff elections in Georgia with Joe Garofoli, senior politics writer for the San Francisco Chronicle, Bernard Fraga, associate professor of political science at Emory University, author of The Turnout Gap, Race, Ethnicity, and Political Inequality in a Diversifying America. And we're talking with you, our listeners, getting your reactions and asking you what you think the priorities should be if Democrats do gain control of the Senate. 866-733-6786 is the number to call. 866 733 6786 email addresses forum at KQBD.org or get in touch on twitter or facebook at kqed forum steven writes by far the democrats top priority needs to be addressing the mechanisms of power and voting itself they need to address outlaw and reverse many of the anti-democratic steps that republicans have taken for example around gerrymandering bernard braga your reaction to that
4: well, again, I think it feeds into the earlier question about priorities and the fact that, you know, despite, you know, the the need for COVID-related relief, obviously vaccine distribution, you know, many Americans are very concerned about the mechanisms of our democracy being under attack. And it's not just about the president. I think it's not just about President Trump. Many of these issues are not going to go away on January 21st, as as we just heard. Uh, gerrymandering is a major issue and Republicans were particularly successful in state legislatures. And given the Supreme Court's reluctance to do anything about partisan gerrymandering, it's very likely that we'll have even further gerrymandered congressional and state legislative seats uh, you know, in the, in the next term in 2022. So to me, I think that some kind of, it might take a constitutional amendment, but some kind of work, some kind of limits frankly, need to be put on the extent of gerrymandering for both Democrats and Republicans in order to make sure that, you know, Americans are represented by the people they choose instead of politicians choosing who they get to represent.
2: Well, Gregory writes, I thank God that Trump is gone and that it looks like McConnell will also be gone from power. I voted for Biden and I did that because I'm after good government, not to turn the freaking country blue. So I was disgusted to hear Biden crowing about turning Georgia blue. Turning things into a war between red and blue will mobilize the right more than anything else. I, I think, you know, Gregory here is is clearly talking about how, you know, party dominance is not something that he is interested in at all. And I wonder, because Joe Garofoli, one of the things that has come up is the filibuster, right? And if you think that that is something that the Democrats will be willing to change.
5: Well, I, I know that's a uh, priority one for progressive uh, Democrats. They, they're they going to be uh, they're already pressuring Biden to uh, and, and Senate Democrats to to push for that right now. Um, uh, that's that is a, that's one thing on their wish list. It's it's going to be a challenge. But I think, as Gregory said earlier, uh, your, your Joe Manchins, your John Testers of uh, Montana, they're more reluctant. These are, they, you know, not every Democrat is a California Democrat in the Senate and in the House. And uh, and the Senate Democrats, you're going to find more reluctance than you think you will, than you think you might, on uh, on something like the filibuster.
2: Well, Stephen Moraga, join us. Hi, Steve. Uh, good morning. What's on your mind?
1: Uh, well, two questions. Uh, one, uh, there's one Democrat uh, in the Senate uh, that I wonder if Mitch McConnell could entice to change uh, party affiliation and that's Joe Manchin from West Virginia. Uh, I, the pressure that McConnell could exert, the the rewards he could offer to, uh, to a person like Manson are considerable. Uh, any thoughts on that?
2: Steve, thanks. Joe carefully, Joe Manchin. Joe, Man- <laughs> now, Joe Manchin,
5: <laughs> I think Joe Manchin is going to be the most popular guy in the Senate, uh, uh, no matter what, over the next couple of years. Uh, but uh, Joe Manchin has, has repeatedly said, that he is a a Democrat. He's just, he's a different kind of Democrat. He, I mean, his, his state went overwhelmingly for Trump. So he has to, that's the position he has to take. He has to represent that position. I don't think Joe Manchin's going anywhere. I I grew up in in that part of the country in Western Pennsylvania. Uh, He, Joe Manchin is squarely in uh, what represents squarely what that uh, part of the world uh, is all about
2: well steve thanks for the questions i've actually been enjoying some of the joe Manchin memes that i've been seeing let me go to robert in paris robert are you joining us from paris france
1: paris france
2: well thanks so much yep. for calling in
5: <laughs> well i was a bay area resident until 2017. the reason i called was uh like i I'm feeling a little bit like I did in 2008. You know, when Obama won, that was one of the most joyous moments of my life. I mean, that might be an indictment of the breadth of my experience, but it really was wonderful the way I felt. And right now I'm feeling a little, you know, a shadow of that, really. Hmm. And the fact is that when Obama, when we faced reality with what he had to deal with in government, he did a spectacular job, but it was a disappointment in some ways or in many ways it We didn't achieve what we wanted. And so now we have to be prepared for the reality of, of you know, the guts of politics. But, you know, at the moment, it's just it's feeling terrific to have this idea.
2: Well, Robert, thanks for sharing that. And you're reminding me to just step back for a moment and talk about just how significant this is for the Biden administration. I mean, I mean, basically, Bernard Fraga, we're we're looking at cabinet members that can go from may being confirmed to can be confirmed. Uh, Also, we just heard that uh, President-elect Joe Biden has selected Merrick Garland uh, for attorney general. This was, of course, a federal appeals court judge who in 2016 Republicans refused to to have any kind of hearing for a seat on the U.S. Supreme Court. I mean, (laughs) what do you make of all that?
4: Well, you know, it's been interesting to hear the the different callers and their their feelings about the current political situation. You know, some are are celebrating, you know, the the country turning blue in terms of who has the levers of power. Others are a little bit concerned, you know, not, uh, you know, perhaps favoring Democrats over Republicans, but not wanting complete Democratic control. And I think that something like this election of Merrick Garland is a really clear indication of the future trajectory. Uh, you know, this is not going to be the the hyper-progressive AOC-led government that that Republicans, frankly, in my state of Georgia, were were trying to scare voters into believing was to come. Uh, This is going to be a, a government that indeed represents a wide swath of the country because, frankly, for Democrats to win, they have to represent a much larger portion of the country. Than Republicans do, just given gerrymandering the Senate and other things. So, I mean, I think that the the Democratic Party now is presenting itself as a as a big tent kind of party that's going to offer something for everyone, but not giving everything to anyone. And I I really think that the um, the moment that we're in right now is a is a potential for coming together again, recognizing where blame needs to be placed and where we need to move forward but but really also coming together to to move forward to solve the major problems and there are many problems that we have today
2: joe carefully could i get your reaction as well And, and i mean also your reaction to merrick garland i mean i feel like there's some poetic justice in that
5: Yes, I I don't think we can say what I've been seeing on the the words I've been saying seeing on Twitter now to describe what uh, why, why Joe uh, Joe Biden is uh, nominated. That sort of a, we'll just call it the big payback to Mitch McConnell. Um, but uh, I think there was. Um, uh, th- the thing that the, the Biden is, he's going to have to – Merrick Garland's got a lot on his plate, number one. First of all, what to do about some of the stuff that involves uh, President Trump. How hard is he going to want to go after some of the, uh, the allegations against him? Uh, what about the allegations against Hunter Biden? There's an investigation that uh, – Previous attorney general started against him. What is uh, so he is? But Biden has promised that his attorney general would be not essentially the president's personal lawyer, as uh, President Trump uh, treated the uh, AG as uh, for much of his term. So uh, this is, but Merrick Garland is going to have a lot of very sticky issues on his plate, as well as. is is doing things like, what's he going to do about the Voting Rights Act? Pelosi said she's going to bring that up again. Uh, How will that be enforced, et cetera, et cetera? Mm.
2: Well, Joan writes, for the sake of the planet and the health and sanity of Americans, I'm so relieved that the Dems will have the majority in the Senate. The stakes in this election were so high, as well as my faith in our country. Pam writes, it's refreshing to see that we haven't lost all sanity and democracy in the country, with Georgia turning out biden's win and the ousting of mcconnell is the best news so far this year speaking of mitch mcconnell i'm being told he just gave a speech breaking with president trump noting quote if this election were to be overturned by mere allegations from the losing side our democracy would enter a death spiral he also added quote if we overrule american voters we will damage our republic forever Mm -hmm. any reaction to that joe carefully
5: uh, yes, I mean it, it, that's it's essentially what Tom McClintock uh, said uh, yesterday. He said if you know if if the Congress were to act and take action here, that would essentially be Congress electing the president. There would be it would be the House elected the president, the Senate electing the president. That is not what democracy is all about, and it's surprising to hear all this stuff coming from Republicans who were, you know, always for you know, decades and centuries have talked about the, the rule of law and, uh, and the limited power of government. And now they're trying to, many of them are trying to do the ultimate uh, in, in sort of a coup of government and, and, and overstepping what the traditional uh, bounds of democracy are all about.
2: Well, this listener writes, I'm curious if Bernard Fraga thinks this outcome will spur
4: more voter suppression efforts like gerrymandering in Georgia. Well, that's an excellent question. And I believe that's what everybody's afraid of here right now. Now, the Secretary of State, Brad Raffensperger, who's been lauded for, you know, standing up to Trump, standing up to Trump's lawyers, and those who demand, you know, fourth, fifth, sixth, however many recounts it's going to take for Trump to get the votes that he needs. Uh, you know, he's been lauded for that work, but he's also said that there needs to be reforms to the election system, including ending no excuse absentee voting in California, A vote by mail state. You know, that again means that voters would not be able to submit their ballots via the mail. Also curtailed early voting opportunities, uh, you know, earlier in his term. So I think that the questions now are whether... Those kind of measures will be sustained, will be sustained by Congress, will be sustained by the courts, and that, you know, Republicans will continue to pursue a politics of limiting who can vote, or at least limiting the ways in which people can vote, instead of trying to appeal to a broader swath of the population.
2: Again, Bernard Fraga is author of The Turnout Gap, Race, Ethnicity, and Political Inequality in a Diversifying America, also Associate Professor of Political Science at Emory University. Joe Garofoli is also with a Senior Politics Writer at the San Francisco Chronicle, and you, our listeners, are talking with us about the U.S. Senate runoff elections in Georgia and the ripple effects it's having in California and across the country, 866-733-6786, the number to call if you want to join the conversation. Again, 866-733-6786. Our email address, forum at kqed.org. And you can also post on Twitter or Facebook at KQED Forum. You're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. And let me go to Scott in San Francisco. Hi, Scott.
5: Hi. Uh, Good morning. Thank you for taking my call. Um, If I think that there's any one core issue that's at the root of most of the things we talk about today in the political landscape, it's that the country is so divided in the information we're getting two halves of the country are living two completely different realities. And I largely think this is because um, the FCC used to have regulations for um, fair and balanced views on things, and they used to have ownership control in media markets. So no one um, company or corporation or um, interest could own an entire media market. And um, while the Biden FCC could bring those things back, it would be great for a Democratic Senate and House majority to put those things into law so we can trust that we're getting everyone is getting the same good and true information.
2: Well, Scott, thanks. Joe Garofoli, wondering if you have a response to Scott. Uh, yeah,
5: I know th- that would be wonderful, but uh, I don't think that that's, I haven't heard that on the Democratic agenda uh, at all. Um, uh, and it would, I think the what's something that's higher, another media issue that's higher on their agenda is to, to do something about social media companies, which is a very uh, a difficult issue for for many Democrats to, to get through, given that <laughs> social media uh, leaders and employees are, are some of their largest funders. Um So I think that is a media issue that's sort of higher on their uh, to-do list than than that.
2: Well, Stephen writes, David Perdue's campaign has said he will contest the results of Ossoff winning. Can't that contest unfold well past the inauguration day, enabling the Senate to stay a GOP majority? Is that something we should be worried about, Joe, carefully?
5: I'm sorry, I didn't quite understand the, the question. David
2: Perdue's campaign said he will contest the results of Ossoff winning. Can... Can't that contest unfold well past? I, I believe the contestation, right? Unfold well past the inauguration day, enabling the Senate to stay a GOP majority. Uh, Stephen, Wright?
5: Yeah, I don't. I don't know the timing on that. Um, I don't think that he is at this point. He's not within the bounds of. Uh, I haven't even seen the latest numbers of that 0.5 percent that you need uh, for a recount. And beyond that, I don't know what else he could do uh, uh, to to do that. And I think there's enough time before the. Uh, Inauguration to seat uh, uh, to seat off of.
2: And let me go to Cole in Oakland. Hi,
1: Cole. Hello, Miss Kim. Thank you for taking my call. Uh, For your guests, I wanted to ask: with uh, the White House and uh, the
5: Congress uh, being controlled by Democrats now, how how worried are you all about the the judicial branch being with mostly conservatives on the bench uh, and with nobody? Seemingly stepping down anytime soon, uh, how is that going to affect the Biden presidency going forward?
2: Cole, thanks for the question. Yes. Uh, I'm sorry was that was that you, Joe, who wanted to respond?
5: Oh, uh, well, I was just going to say uh, one thing uh, to keep in mind is uh, Stephen Breyer is 82 years old, um, and so this may uh, you, you may see him uh, put up his hand and call for a sub.
2: Um, Well, Bernard Parker, what is your reaction to that Um, as you're talking about how the Democrats can govern some of the ways that uh, they they might try to be careful, whether or not that's the right way to go? And, of course, one of those things being how they handle the Supreme Court.
4: You know, so uh, I was just reading that Mitch McConnell, um, some people are saying he's standing up for democracy because he said he's really, you know, um, criticized Republicans on in his speech today on the floor for um, you know, taking these kind of stances, you know, contesting the election results. And he said he's not going to do that, that he, he's going to you know, vote to certify and everything. And it's important to realize the position that he's in and what he sees as his crowning achievement. It's not Trump or these other things. It's the fact that he has shaped the judiciary in to a greater degree than, than basically any other Senate majority leader ever has the Republicans have been able to put in place justices in their 30s, early 40s, right, that are going to be in office for decades to come. So if we think about government and, you know, what's important here, and especially the role of the courts recently, you know, it's very clear the Republicans are going to con- continue to control, in a sense, one of the key branches of government. And we can't look at the courts as this kind of neutral bodies. It's just adjudicating right and wrong. I mean, they're adjudicating, you know, different priorities and different understandings about what government should and should not do. So Republicans are gonna maintain a lot of power. Uh, they're gonna maintain a lot of power in the courts, including the Supreme Court. And that's why Amy Comey Barrett's uh, nomination was so important. But I think that the question going forward is whether some Democrats, and this probably won't happen, but some Democrats are going to be serious and the calls for expanding the Supreme Court or calls for having some reforms to maybe uh, term limits for the Supreme Court or other reforms to to the judiciary.
2: You know, we just have about 30 seconds or so left, Joe Garofoli, and I wonder if you could leave us with some thoughts on whether this changes what happened uh, in Georgia. I mean, the fact that we're looking at potentially two Democratic senators from the state of Georgia, if it changes or informs the narrative of what this 2020 election past last year's 2020, and this Senate runoff was all about.
5: Well one thing uh, I think it showed was that what the future of the Democratic Party uh, would, should, would and should look like. and they hear this from I've been hearing this from activists for, for years now, and that is uh, it's people of color, it's white progressives. And, and that's what they learned both in Georgia and in Arizona. And now the next sites for Democrats are going to be Texas. Flipping Texas and Flipping North Carolina. Uh, We've been hearing about Texas for years and uh, perhaps the next presidential cycle is when it uh, may actually happen.
2: Joe Garofoli, senior politics writer for the San Francisco Chronicle, Bernard Fraga, associate professor of political science at Emory University and author of The Turnout Gap, Race, Ethnicity, and Political Inequality in a Diversifying America. Thanks to both of you for joining us. Susan Britton produced today's segment. Thanks to our listeners for weighing in with their reactions to the U.S. Senate runoffs in Georgia. I'm Nina Kim. Thanks for listening.